Okay, the final uh, session is called Keeping Our Zest. And uh, this is going to be hopefully the final, let's say, uh, amalgamation of all that we've discussed so far. And so the first text I want to uh, look at is, uh, to anchor this in, is First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. Bless you. Bless you. So I'm going to read from uh, starting in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And hopefully uh, anchor this all in. So I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, if you're asking, let's say, the, the ultimate question of the biblical worldview, why is it that we experience these moments of shame, guilt, suffering, weakness, depression? Uh, for a Christian, a part of the answer uh, lies in what I would call a value statement. Uh, it makes a value statement about holding on to Christ in the absence of other material comforts. Peter articulates it as, so that the genuineness of your faith may be revealed. So it's, it, he's, he's essentially saying it makes your faith uh, more valuable. Your faith is tested and it is found to be genuine by these various trials. So uh, we could consider a trial something like the subjective experience of sin and shame in spite of an objective reality of not having guilt or shame before Christ. That is in some way a subjective suffering that we feel in this life. Okay. Now, uh, before I move too far away from Peter's argument, I want to look at one more text in 1 Peter, which is chapter 4, verse 12. And this is, let's say, the second way that Peter answers the question, why do we suffer ultimately in this world? This is verse 12, verse Peter, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God who rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for, sorry, sorry, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Peter's argument, it's saying in this text, two answers to suffering. First one is so that your faith would be tested and found genuine. Uh, second answer, uh, so that you actually make a value statement about God. Uh, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Um, and this is a value statement. If you share in his sufferings, you shouldn't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. As a Christian, uh, we are expecting this. Okay? 
Now, then we could supposedly ask the question, well, why is it that Christians have to suffer in this life? And for that, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, You are the salt of the earth, but if your salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, uh, the two, let's say, ways Jesus describes uh, followers of him, salt and light. Uh, the light is obviously a reference to doing good works, showing God's light, his truth, his holiness into the world. Uh, this is one of the ways we distinguish ourselves as Christians when we go about. And the other uh, way he identifies us is as salt. And the basic point is salt acts to preserve the world, and salt is a, salt is a flavoring agent. His argument is, you are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall that saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for everything, ex for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. So, how do Christians set themselves apart, salt and light? Well, I, I'm, I'm making a partial contention that one of the ways Christians set themselves apart from the world, one of the ways they have their saltiness, let's say, remain intact, is by suffering and holding on to Christ as a value statement about how good it is to hold on to Christ. Now, uh, I need to frame this. In our world, I would consider uh, there's a couple of, let's say, chief values that people hang on to. The world chiefly values uh, some mix of either comfort, wealth, success, and respect. If you were to ask someone why are they doing what they're doing, their job, their career, investing in their family, whatever, they're probably doing it for one of those reasons. Maybe some mix of them. But if you look at that, uh, we know that those don't all come together, and the world's okay with that, right? People are fine not being successful, not being respected, not being wealthy, so long as they're comfortable. People are fine not being comfortable if it means that they can be successful. People are fine not being successful as long as they're respected and comfortable. Like, it, there's some mix of these things that people find value and identity in, in the world. And when a Christian suffers, we take all the chief values of the world and we say, yeah, we don't need any of that. We'll just take Christ. We're making a value statement. We're uh, adding zest to our saltiness and in going out into the world, we're making statements about what we value as opposed to what the world values. In the Western world, one of the uh, issues that happened, let's say a generation ago, was that the Christian values were actually the values that led to comfort, wealth, success, and respect in the culture. And so you, what you had is you had a lot of cultural Christians, people who were confess Christ and hold on to him not for himself, but because he leads to them obtaining comfort, wealth, success, respect, whatever it is. This is the same lie that the prosperity gospel teaches, that having Christ leads to the thing the world actually really wants, comfort, wealth, success, and respect. But when a Christian suffers, they're in a unique place, a special kind of spot, where they can make a testimony about the value of Christ as opposed to the value of the things that the world makes value statements on. I think that's the most powerful kind of testimony we have as Christians in this world. Not only do we walk in purity, are we light to this world, but also are we set apart as preserving agents in this world? Do we have a zest to us, a salt? And this is, let's say, the idea that is put forth by, by Peter, 
Don't be surprised. You're expecting trial. Don't despair because it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. But the genuineness of your faith is not being tested in a vacuum. When Christians suffer, often they suffer publicly or at least as it's known to others. And the longer they suffer and the more they hold on to Christ, it makes a statement about the value of Christ in, uh, in the face of other things. There's a couple of examples of this. I'll just turn to uh, two of them. Uh, one of them comes out of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read this book, uh, there's probably like, I don't know, 20 editions of it now out on the market. Really encourage this book as a read just to, I don't know, get a flavor of Christian history. But this is a story uh, from 1977 in communist China. And listen to the statement or the testimony of the Christian witness in here. So it was in Kangxi, China, that two Christian girls, whose name was Chu Chin Su and Ho Su Tzu, and their pastor, they were sentenced to death. And on many such occasions in church history, the persecutors would mock and scorn them for being so foolish as to die for an unseen God. Then they promised the pastor that if he would shoot the girls, they would release him, and he accepted. The girls waited patiently in their prison cells for the moment of their execution. They prayed quietly together, and the guards soon came for them and led them out. A fellow prisoner who watched the execution through the barred windows of his prison cell said that their faces were pale and yet beautiful beyond belief, infinitely sad but infinitely sweet. They were placed against the wall and their pastor was brought forward by two guards. They placed him close in front of the girls and put a pistol in his hand. The girls whispered to each other and bowed respectfully to their pastor. And one of them said, before being shot by you, we wish to heartily thank you for what you have meant to us. You have baptized us. You have taught us the way of eternal life. You've given us holy communion with the same hand in which you now have a gun. May God reward you for all that you have done to us. You also taught us that Christians are sometimes weak and commit terrible sins, and yet they can be forgiven. When you regret what you are about to do to us, do not despair like Judas, but repent like Peter. God bless you and remember that our last thought of you was not one of indignation against your failure. Everyone who passes through the hours of darkness, or everyone passes through hours of darkness, we will die in gratitude. They bowed again to their pastor, closed their eyes, and stood silently waiting. The pastor, who had obviously hardened his heart, raised the pistol and shot them both. No sooner had they fallen to the ground than the communist guards put him against the wall for an immediate execution. They also shot him, and no one heard words of repentance, only the sound of screaming. That text is a value statement. What are the Christian girls valuing? Well, they're not valuing their lives in this world. They're not valuing their body. They don't want the respect of the guards. They don't want wealth. They're not looking for all those things. What are they holding on to? Christ, in spite of the absence of the deprivation of all those things. The pastor, what is he saying he values in the end? He values his life. Comfort, release, right? Some form of preserving himself. He makes a value statement. They make a value statement. And their value statements are brought forth by the persecution. The trial forces them to put their, all their eggs in one basket or another. So when Christians suffer trials, we're, we, we, we're no longer left to, like, let's say, punt the decision of what we really value until some later date. When the trial is upon you, you have to declare what you value. And you do so by how you live and how you interact in that statement. When we value something, it comes out of us. For the martyrs, that was wholeheartedly true. The point is, I think it helps us keep our zest in this world. That suffering is something God permits his people to go through, even though he's sovereign and could stop it at any moment, to test their faith, to make their faith stronger, 
and as a testimony to the rest of the world. As Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 4, uh, we share in the sufferings of Christ, and it is a glory to us when we do so. So uh, with that being said, uh, there's one more, let's say, angle I want to take in this last session, um, which is if we particularly look at someone who's walking through a dark season of depression, and we ask the question, does Scripture have anything for that kind of a person? How would they hold on to God if it's not uh, cancer, it's not the loss of a job, it's not something like this. It's, let's say, a long, protracted season of walking through depression. What does Scripture have for someone like that? And I think the Psalms are rich and plenty with this. Uh, so we'll look at two Psalms. First is Psalm 13, and we'll also look at Psalm 44. Keep in mind, this is going to bring to head a lot of the other stuff we've talked about. And I just want to read the psalm, and then we'll reflect on it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say that I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is a realistic look at a season of suffering, a season of despair. And what the psalmist doesn't do is pretend like they live in a fairy tale where no suffering or affliction is going to be faced by them. Instead, they, uh, in a very raw way, take their suffering straight to God uh, with pointed questions and essentially with a, an expectation that God is a certain way. He's a good God. And so they're asking questions. How long will you hide your face from me? How long? How long? How long? They make an argument to God that he should indeed turn his face towards them. And then you'll notice the last stanza. They, they remind themselves, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, the psalmist never addresses, did their season of suffering get dealt with? They never address, uh, did the affliction that was assailing them actually go away? Never. They only articulate it to God and remind themselves of the objective truth, that God is good, that he has steadfast love, and he has it for his people, and that they were promised, as a child of God, that they will be able to praise him forever. Those are all objective truths that an Israelite would know, and it's in the face of that subjective experience of reality that they remind themselves of that objective truth. So uh, if you're a Christian walking through a season of depression, or you know someone walking through a season of depression, the point that the Psalms raise is the subjective experiences are not to be suppressed and pushed away. They're actually to be taken before God because he loves his people and he cares for them, while at the same time, not so casting our feelings before God that we lose any sense of objective reality. If someone is depressed, let's say to the point of them wanting to take their own life, the counsel we would not want to give them is uh, you have an accurate self-assessment in this moment because of your subjective experience. The assessment we want to give is no, your life is valuable even if you don't feel like it in this moment. Why can we say that? That's an objectively true statement from scripture and we can hold on to that as Christians. 
because we believe in the objective reality over and above subjective reflective experience. This is true even of a believer who's wrestling with depression. Their subjective reality testifies all around them to a lack of God's goodness, a lack of enjoyment, a lack of delight, all these things. Now, what can we testify to them? Yes, and scripture has a category for that, and scripture has a God that can listen to that. Scripture has a God that can actually sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And we have a God whose ear is turned towards his people, who listens, and we have a God who is good, and that is an objective series of facts that we can bring before someone. And the Psalms actually, let's say, have a walkway to walk for someone who's, who's, who's living in a season like this. Psalm 13. Uh, the other one I want to look at is Psalm 44. Um, and this is one that Paul actually quotes uh, in Romans 8 when he reflects on God's steadfast goodness. And I just want to read one uh, quote from Psalm 44, although the whole psalm is profitable. Verse 21, or sorry, I'm going to start in verse uh, 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You can ask in the face of all these subjective experiences, why is it that the psalmist doesn't just stop writing and become an atheist and say that therefore God must not be good? It's because they're already convinced of the objective truth that there is only one God in heaven who's listening. So if there's only one God, there's only one creator, there's only one place to turn, even if you don't understand why things are happening to you the way they are, that's the only place to turn. The psalmist doesn't despair, he doesn't understand, but he still keeps praying to God in the face of all this confusion, all this darkness. This is the very hope of God's people, even uh, to this day. Uh, we know that God is good, and we know that the threat of despair is not a threat that actually carries teeth with it. And here's what I mean by that. Despair is always promising to destroy us, but never actualizing that destruction. If you want a picture of this, Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim goes to Downing Castle with giant despair. The names of it are a little on the nose. And what ends up happening in Downing Castle is for a series of days, uh, Christian and his companion are threatened with the future tearing apart limb from limb by the giant. And the giant says, you can either kill yourself or if I find you alive tomorrow, I'll rip you limb from limb. And he comes to them day after day after day and says this thing. The point is, it's always some future destruction that the giant is promising. And at some point, uh, they contemplate, should we do it? It would be far less painful if we did it this way, all, all these things. And at the end, what happens is one day they're persevering. And then Christian finds in his pocket uh, a key called promise. And that key unlocks every single lock in Doubting Castle and essentially leads them free. And the point that John Bunyan is making is that when faced with the moment-by-moment -moment affliction that we have in our subjective experience, what do you hold on to? What gets you out of that place? The promise of God, that he's a good God, that he loves you, that he's actually objectively dealt with your sin, 
and that he will come again to redeem his people and make them a bride fit for himself. The promises that we hold on to as Christians are the things that get us through the despair and the doubt. And the despair and the doubt don't actually have teeth themselves. They just always threaten to end us. That's the point. So as Christians, those are all the objective things. Now let's say someone's not a Christian and they're in the exact same place. Well, the one thing that we can certainly say is that there might actually be a material cause for them to be feeling despair in the way that they do. For instance, if someone's a, a, not a believer and they have sin that abounds in their life and they're wondering, why am I depressed? The first thing as a Christian you might want to do when you're interacting with them is asking them the question, well, why is it that they delight in these things? Do they really bring them happiness? Do they really bring them joy? And what you might find is that those things are actually all band-aid solutions to their despair. But as a Christian, you know that's actually causing much of their despair because it's always putting them in a wrong place before God, always marring them, always hurting them, always heaping guilt upon them. And no matter how far they run away from those objective realities, there's no way to actually deal with it except to go to the cross and to deal with sin objectively. What we wouldn't want to do is give them a message of the cross without hope. But what we also wouldn't want to do is give them hope without the cross. And that's because it's not a possibility. It's not objectively possible to do that. So if someone's struggling with depression and they come to you as a, and, and you know of sin in their life, something they need to confess, you give them the full-blown Christian worldview about how they can actually deal with their depression and guilt. And you walk them through from A all the way, all the way through. And then you tell them on the other end of that, that God is an objectively good God. He objectively honors his promises. And this is way better than anything you've got going right now. That is the Christian witness about despair and depression. Now, that's not to say that you do that in a callous kind of way, in a way that's not sympathetic to suffering. But the point is, people actually can't experience freedom from depression, especially not a materialist or a humanist, because th their worldview already precludes that this is all there is in life. And so if happiness is not found here, it's not found anywhere. As a Christian, you're actually going to leverage the opposite kind of worldview, which is actually, we know because of a fallen world that happiness may or may not be found here, but it objectively is happy in the future in, in union with Christ. There's a different worldview at play. And so that's what you're offering to someone. If someone that you know is a Christian struggling with that kind of despair or doubt, what do you do? Objective truth reminders about who God is and what he's like. The character of God is the thing that gets Job through his suffering not some right theological answer about why he was suffering. The best thing Job's friends do for him in that entire book is that whole week where they don't say a word before they try to give pithy chapter answers to his suffering, right? So the Christian, one of the things we do is we, we be like Christ to people. And what do you mean by that is we enter into their brokenness, enter into their suffering with them and simply exist and walk alongside with them in that pain. That's what Christ does to us when we're in despair and doubt. He doesn't, uh, just preach truth to us. He also enters into human form, enters into suffering, enters into our brokenness and deals with it. And then he sends his spirit to help us along as we, you know, continue to work that thing out. And we are called to be that salt and light to the rest of this world, to enter into people's brokenness, to love them well, and not to try to provide, provide cute or su succinct answers to really complex problems, but rather to pray for them, to meet them where they're at, and to love them well, to be the hands and feet of God, so that when they say, I wonder what God is like, at least in part, they taste that by interacting with us. That we love them, that we can uh, extend a hand to them, 
And I think that that is the, the real testimony. If you read John Bunyan's, uh, that chapter in Pilgrim's Progress, the whole thrust is Pilgrim and his companion, they need each other to get through that process because both of them seriously contemplate killing themselves in the, in the course of that despair. The point is they needed one another. They needed fellow Christian witness. And if someone's not a Christian, that doesn't mean they don't need Christian witness. It just means they're not gonna get it unless you probably give it to them. And so that's what we're really called to do in this world, to be salt and light, to go forth and share the good news and the worldview that Christ has to offer. So with that, uh, let me just close this session. And if you guys have questions or whatever, uh, I'll also be sticking around. Uh, and if I didn't get to your questions, I'll probably just try to follow up with you one-on-one -on, -one on them as well. But if you have questions, uh, I'd be more than happy to hear them.